Hi, and welcome to Golden Impact, the podcast that deciphers what impact really is when it comes to financing or growing businesses. I am Orient Tong, and during my graduate exchange semester at UC Berkeley, I have dug into the investment thesis and core motivations of impact fund managers, entrepreneurs, and teachers. Today, I have the immense pleasure of interviewing Ian Monroe, an expert on climate solutions and impact investing. Ian teaches at Stanford University and is the chief investment officer of Ethel Capital, a sustainable investing company that he founded in 2015. For us, Ian shares some very open feedback on his first fund launch, some precious advice for anyone getting into impact investing, and also his strong stance in favor of divesting from fossil fuel companies immediately. Ready to make a positive impact? Let's start with Ian's story. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And I do a lot of things related to trying to scale up solutions to climate change. And one of those things is teaching courses on climate solutions at Stanford University. I also advise a number of startups and nonprofits working in this space. But what most of my time goes into is running Etho Capital, which is a sustainable investing company that's focused on investing in the most climate efficient and overall ESG sustainable companies and creating investment solutions that are accessible to investors of all types to be able to invest in more sustainable options relative to conventional funds and do it in a way that's easy and cheap and ideally performing better than what the conventional funds do as well. So it's about being more sustainable, trying to scale up climate solutions by shifting capital into the right places, out of problem areas like fossil fuels and into renewable energy and other sustainable food, etc. solutions throughout the economy. Um, in terms of why I do it, it's, it's really been the area I've been working in pretty much my whole life in different ways. I was raised on kind of a quasi-hippie commune, organic farm uh, here in Northern California, a bit north of here from where we're at in Berkeley right now. And so I was raised by folks that were into sustainability ethos long before it was cool, doing things like sustainable agriculture and uh, off-grid renewable energy. I went on to study the Earth Systems Program at Stanford, looking at sustainability solutions in the context of international development and renewable energy in particular, and then worked in that world uh, all over the world, in Asia, Africa, Latin America, working on various supply chain sustainability projects with NGOs, with companies, with governments. Launched a tech company called Oroeco to track personal sustainability. And while doing that, increasingly became interested in how can we shift money out of problems into solutions. And for Oroeco, we started to track the sustainability of your personal investment portfolio as we were looking at all the impacts and on uh, all the impacts that your life has connected up to climate change, from your diet to your transportation choices to your home energy choices. We started thinking about, well, what about where you decide to invest? And so we started to do climate footprinting for companies. We had this thesis that maybe when we invest in more climate efficient companies, those that have less pollution for every dollar invested, those companies just make for better investments. And started crunching the numbers, saw actually even a much stronger relationship there than we expected. And then that's what led into the founding of Etho Capital when we had this aha discovery that, hey, 
climate solution companies in pretty much every aspect, every area of the economy just seem to make better investments. So how can we take that knowledge and actually make it accessible to all of us as investors to start investing that way? So that's a, a long rambly answer, answer for you, but that's mostly what I do and why I do it. So what types of projects do you um, offer to the investors uh, in this regard? So for Etho Capital, what we're most known for is an ETF, an exchange traded fund that trades with the ticker Etho, like our name, ETHO on the New York Stock Exchange. And that's based on our index that we've created of the most climate efficient and sustainable companies here in the US. So we created something called the Etho Climate Leadership US Index that's been around since uh, now getting close to six years since 2015 and the exchange traded fund is based on that. Now we've expanded beyond just this one fund, um, which grew from, we launched it around two and a half million, now it's getting close to 200 million, so a lot better. We are hoping to get it even bigger to obviously have the kind of impact that we're trying to scale. But beyond Etho, we now also are launching a series of separately managed account funds that at some point we'd like to turn into accessible funds like ETFs. And then we also are working with asset owners to look at the climate impacts and the overall sustainability of their investments. So family offices, wealthy individuals, institutions. And so we have a, a sustainability, climate, and ESG data analytics side of our business now as well. All right. And for, uh, from a general finance perspective, could you explain with more granularity the difference between private funds uh, that you offer, the ETF, and the index uh, to, uh, so that our auditors uh, understand really well how, to, uh, how the whole thing works? So there's lots of different pieces, I guess, just looking at what, what we do primarily is we're an index creator that then goes into uh, the different strategies and funds that are based on the index. So when we create an index of companies, we're basically creating a recipe of a broadly diversified mix of companies that meet our climate and overall ESG sustainability criteria. So for the Etho Climate Leadership Index, we're doing a lot of analysis to look at which companies relative to their industry peers have the best climate footprint, the net uh, best climate positive impacts ideally, and then making sure that those companies fulfill a wide range of environmental, social, and governance ESG criteria as well. And so the index is basically a recipe and then funds like the Etho ETF look at that recipe and try to follow that recipe as closely as possible. And so when you invest in the Etho ETF, you're investing in something that looks almost just like the index, but there's often some cash in there because of different corporate activities. So on average, it's about 99% of what the index is, is what the ETF is as well. And then what we're now doing with a partner called New Day uh, to launch separately managed accounts, it's a similar process where we create an index, that index then is a recipe for the separately managed account SMA investments. 
the one that we're just about to launch is a climate positive global strategy where we're going beyond what we've done with Etho, which is about investing in companies with the least pollution per dollar invested relative to their peers that also meet uh, ESG criteria. But now we're going even farther to have more of a focus even on climate positive impacts. So we're trying to focus the fund to have investments that are still broadly diversified, but even more of the mix are companies that actually have a net climate positive impact. So for every dollar that's invested into them, there actually is a translation to net emissions reductions. And really in many ways, we're trying to broaden out how we think about climate footprint for companies to look not just at what a company is doing and all the impacts connected to a supply chain, but then also the downstream ripple effects of what happens in the world when the company's products and services go out into the world. So an example of a climate positive company would be a renewable energy company that they have climate impacts in the process of producing solar panels or wind turbines, but putting those solar panels and wind turbines out there into the world has much more substantial climate benefits relative to a baseline of using fossil fuel energy. So with Etho, we do that deep dive calculation, find what is the net climate impact for each company, and these climate positive strategies that we're now starting to roll out as separately managed accounts, we're really excited about. And hopefully at some point, those will be ETFs as well. That's the way to dig more into the different uh, investment strategies that you can adopt regarding ESG um, purposes. Um, can you maybe give more granularity on how you as a team, uh, you organize your work uh, to make these uh, screenings and investments so that really digging more into the operational side of, uh, of your fund? Yeah, so a lot of what we do is really diving deep into analyzing companies. And we now are looking at over 11,000 of the most commonly traded public companies around the world. And we're tracking what's called the full scope one, two, and three climate impacts of those companies. So fundamentally, myself included, and most of our team, we're all a bunch of sustainability geeks that are um, in some cases have backgrounds in finance as well. I actually was, as I said, my, my background is coming into this really fundamentally as a climate and sustainability scientist and engineer. Um, so we take a look at what companies, as much as we can tell what they're actually doing, not just what they say they're doing in their glossy CSR, corporate social responsibility reports. And so a lot of what we do is trying to go beyond the more conventionally used ESG data sets to get this complete picture of a company's climate impacts and then also look beyond those conventional ESG data sets to identify which companies have other potential ESG bad actor issues. So our, our process, which there's more about on the Etho Capital website for any of your listeners who are interested, starts with doing this deep dive into company climate impacts, selecting which companies are the climate, what we call climate efficiency leaders, those that have the least climate pollution per dollar invested relative to their industry peers. So we're always comparing companies relative to comparable companies as much as possible. So tech companies with other tech companies, utilities with other utilities, healthcare companies with other healthcare companies, et cetera. Um, and so we're finding those climate efficiency leaders. In many cases, 
there are even companies that are climate positive, like I mentioned, that not only have lower pollution per dollar invested, but they actually have this net benefit in terms of climate for every dollar invested into them. And so that's our first phase of screening for companies is looking at thousands of companies doing this really deep dive on climate. We think deeper than anything else that we've seen in the industry and selecting the climate leaders and the climate positive companies. Then once that's narrowed down from thousands of companies to a few hundred companies, those few hundred potential candidate companies we take a deeper dive into and look for basically the full range of standard ESG concerns. So does the company uh, look okay in terms of its racial and gender equity policies? Does it look okay in terms of other environmental pollution issues and corporate governance issues? And if we see any bad actor red flags, we have uh, investment com committee analyze whether or not they're sufficient enough to remove a company. And then we actually uh, will send out our prototype index uh, to get feedback from other NGOs that are working on specific sustainability issues. And so that's one of the final phases of our process is actually effectively crowdsourcing expertise from sustainability experts working in different areas of ESG to try to make sure that we're taking out all those potential bad actor ESG risk companies, even if they may look okay in terms of the climate screens. So really, that's a long-winded way of saying we're trying to take the best in terms of climate and make sure that those companies also are at least not bad, if not also the best in terms of ESG issues, and then still combine those with a really diversified portfolio approach that makes it so ultimately you're investing in something that should have pretty similar performance and we think on average it'll be better because these are more efficient, better run companies with fewer ESG risks. Um, but ultimately with Ethos investment strategies right now, you're still investing in something that should perform similar to what its index benchmark is doing, whether it's a US fund like Etho and S&P 500 or the global strategies that we're rolling out right now, which we expect will look very competitive relative to global index benchmarks. And mm -hmm. of course, I have to make the SEC happy and say past performance <laughs> can't guarantee future results. But with what we've seen, uh, we are, are very bullish on how these kind of strategies can really become how people do core index investing moving forward. Great, and always with the intention of having a positive impact through what you do. That's what we're trying to do is ultimately, much like your, your podcast, it's <laughs> all about impact and, and figuring out how to make that impact scalable. And uh, to be scalable, diversification is one of the keys because particularly the largest asset owners, the biggest investment investors out there, institutional investors like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, etc., they're only going to invest in something in a big way if they see that it is performing at least as well, if not better, than the conventional index benchmarks. And as probably many of your listeners, at least those that do things related to finance know, there's been this big shift towards broad-based diversified index investing. So really with Etho, we see what we're doing as the next logical evolution of that that's creating indexes that aren't based on just a relatively arbitrary criteria like market cap, like company size, but instead from the bottom up, there are indexes that are composed of a 
broadly diversified mix of more sustainable, efficient companies. Because again, a core piece of our philosophy is that this isn't just the right thing to do for people on the planet, but ultimately this approach, particularly considering that climate pollution is connected to almost every aspect of every company's supply chain. So this approach really, we think, helps us identify companies that are just more efficient, that are better run, because climate efficiency is actually a proxy for just basically companies that are doing more with less, mm -hmm. those that are being more efficient in how they do things, those that are continuing to innovate, continuing to invest in improving their supply chains, continuing to think about the impacts of the products and services on the world beyond them. And really, these are the companies that we think have the best long-term prospects, not just because they're more de-risked in terms of climate impacts that tend to disrupt supply chains and in terms of climate policies like prices on pollution that increasingly should be helping drive companies, all companies in this direction, but also just it's an indication that these companies are more forward-looking, that these companies are focused on continuing to innovate. And generally, those are the kind of companies that you want to be invested in, not companies that are stuck in the past, stuck in legacy ways of doing things. Definitely. We'll go deeper into uh, the reflection of what impact is. And for this, I asked you to choose a song which uh, means positive impact for you. We'll uh, listen to uh, like an extract of it so that we can explain more about uh, to us what she chose this one. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Yeah, I'm going to get out of, <laughs> out of my seat right now. Yeah, so why, why does that mean impact to me? Um, I already warned you that I was raised by hippies, so I, I grew up <laughs> listening to a lot of reggae music and a lot of Bob Marley and Peter Tosh in particular. And, um, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of stereotypes about reggae and, I don't know, smoking marijuana and just kind of partying, but a huge piece of Marley's music and Peter Tosh's music was about social justice and about getting up and standing up for our rights. And uh, they grew up in really poor area in, in Trenchtown in Kingston, Jamaica, and constantly were writing music about social justice. And for me, climate solutions are really ultimately about social justice. And I think too often we think about climate change and maybe more broadly, things like ESG investing, just in the broad context of environmental issues, mm -hmm. particularly climate change. But really, if you look at all the climate science, which can be terrifying, it becomes really apparent that it connects to every aspect of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And ultimately, you know, it, it's all about people. It's us people that are causing the problem. It's people as well as all sorts of other species, basically every other species on the planet that are feeling the impacts. And in terms of social justice, the, the wealthy are the really the ones causing the most mm -hmm. problems. And those with the least resources to adapt are those that are in the position um, where they're feeling the brunt of climate impacts. Though, as we've seen here, uh, it really at this point, climate impacts are being felt by everybody, whether you're here in California and 
that you go through now months out of the year where the air is so thick with wildfire smoke that you're worried about your health, the health of your children, um, or you're directly impacted by those fires, uh, which unfortunately my family has been. I grew up on this small farm, as I mentioned, that was in the middle of one of these big wildfires in 2017, and it burned down my home, my mom's home. I had over two dozen family members lose their homes just overnight and hundreds in our community, same story. A few of our neighbors even got trapped and lost their lives. And it's these things that are happening really almost on a daily, if not at least weekly basis around the world that I think really needs to motivate us to get up and stand up mm -hmm. for our rights to a healthy, sustainable planet where our homes and our livelihoods and our lives aren't constantly threatened. and where we have, as much as possible, equal opportunity for all of us to be healthy and thrive and, and see hope for the future. And ultimately, impact investing really, I think, is, is filled with hope. Mm -hmm. And it is something that we can exercise our rights to have our portfolio aligned with our values and show that Actually, it just seems to be a better way to invest overall, not just because it's right for people on the planet, but in terms of portfolio performance, too. And that's getting into, I don't know, maybe more philosophy than mm -hmm. <laughs> typically we talk about when we talk about impact investing. But it ultimately, for me, is about taking back our agency, our power as investors, and not just doing what the status quo has been, which the status quo is basically most anybody who is lucky enough to have the wealth to be able to invest it is putting it in a bank, putting it in broad-based index funds or mutual funds that are investing in a whole lot of the problems that the vast majority of us say we want to fix, whether it's climate change, whether it's social injustice of other types. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we need to be active and engaging and really rabble-rousing a bit, uh, much like Marley and Tosh and mm -hmm. the social justice pioneers of kind of early reggae music and a lot of the music that was flowing through the world, particularly around the 60s and 70s. But now that we have all this knowledge about impacts, impact science connected to companies, connected to investments, we really are much more empowered to shift from problems into solutions and encourage others to do so. And whether it's getting out on the street or pushing for legislation that pushes for more transparency in investments and more transparency in how public funds in particular are invested, or it's just looking at our own portfolios and shifting assets out of conventional problems into sustainable solutions. I think we all need to get up and stand up and do that. <laughs> so. It was a good excuse to, to think back to my hippie heritage <laughs> and all the, the reggae concerts I at least used to go to when I was a kid. Very good excuse. And thanks for sharing that uh, with us as well. Um, in terms of very down-to-earth um, definition, but I think it's important as the uh, sector is getting uh, more momentum, what would be for you if there is uh, a difference between ESG uh, so environmental, social, and government um, 
considerations and impact considerations. So is there a difference? And if yes, why? I, th I think historically there has been a difference. I'd like to see the two merging more and more. When I think of what I call sometimes ESG 1.0 investing, it's a lot about trying to remove the bad and, and a little bit about trying to invest in, in leaders that are better. Um, and it kind of came out of what was called socially responsible investing, SRI, right, which was all about removing the bad. Um, and, and ESG is kind of a step towards let's invest in a bit better as well. But unfortunately, I think ESG still at this point is really too focused around working with relatively limited data that is really primarily coming from the companies themselves and their corporate social responsibility reporting, which they even are calling ESG reporting at this point. And so the good news is sustainability in general and ESG in particular has become very mainstream. Investors everywhere are talking about it now. That wasn't actually the case when we started doing this with Etho just less than five years ago when some of the largest investment product companies in the world that we talked to were saying, yeah, this is just a small little niche thing or we don't even think we're gonna do anything in this space. We think it's a trend. Now all those companies have their own ESG investment funds. But ultimately those ESG investment funds are still really focused on ESG data that is a lot just regurgitating what companies say about themselves in their CSR reports and checking the box if companies basically are saying nice things about themselves. So it's about what they say more than what they're actually doing in their operations. Uh, impact investing, I think of as being um, certainly a bit more focused on impact, as the name suggests, but g more traditionally, it's been more of a private equity thing where you're investing in startups that are focused primarily on specific impact areas related to climate, other SDGs. Um, and I think there's certainly always a need for more and more investing in early stage ideas to st scale companies. But ultimately, the biggest flow of investor dollars is always going into publicly traded companies that are much, much bigger than startups. And those publicly traded companies generally have much more impact in terms of their broad supply chain. And when those startups are successful, often they're gobbling them up, or at least they're, they're paying for their products and services. And so I think we really need to, as I said, merge impact investing and ESG investing by making what we're doing in the public equity space also actually driving positive impact. And that's a lot, a lot of that philosophy is what goes into what we're doing now with these climate positive strategies at Etho, where with the ETHO ETF and the ETHO Climate Leadership Index, uh, as I said, we're trying to filter out the best companies, take out bad actors. Um, but in terms of climate pollution, there still is. It's a much lower, but there's still a net climate pollution uh, figure for every dollar invested into ETHO. We're now trying to shift that into impact investing by making that a net climate benefit for every dollar invested in the future strategies that we're launching. So you as an investor can feel that every dollar that you're putting into the fund, which hopefully will continue to grow, uh, is actually having a benefit in terms of climate. And then at the same time, it is 
at least not investing in bad actors related to other ESG issues. And in many cases, it's investing in companies that also are leaders in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion and other ESG issues that we think are quite important. Uh, I should mention with Etho, there are certain industries that we just consider inherently unsustainable and socially irresponsible. Probably your listeners could guess which many of those <laughs> industries are. Obviously, we don't invest in any fossil fuel companies or even those that are connected to the industry, like pipeline companies. Uh, we don't invest in any tobacco companies. We don't invest in weapons companies. So basically, if your core product or service is either directly killing people or killing people through causing climate change and making the world worse, we don't invest in you as a company. But pretty much everywhere else in the economy, we do invest because ultimately to solve climate change and most of these other ESG, SDG issues we care about, we have to have economy-wide solutions. Yeah, we can scale up renewable energy overnight. Uh, we can shift to electric vehicles overnight, but we still have all sorts of different types of industrial pollution and pollution connected to agriculture and consumption in other areas that we need to fix. And so that's a lot of uh, our thinking behind ETHO as well is about how do we effectively invest in decarbonizing our entire economy and trying to get capital flowing in the right direction and continuously be improving the climate impacts of every dollar that's invested with the strategies we put out there. So again, circling back to your original question, impact and ESG, I think they need to be merged together and then we also need to make sure that the ESG screening that we're doing really is authentic. Mm -hmm. And for me, climate really needs to be front and center there because it touches on basically every other ESG issue as well. So with ETHO, we, we're quantitative deep dive climate first, but that doesn't mean the other ESG issues don't matter as well, then we dive in there. And we hope with what we're doing with this broader, deeper climate analysis, we're able to actually really drive impact through scaling up these strategies that we're working on. Going deeper into the process of really launching a fund, could you walk us through uh, your first fund launch process, very step by step? I was who you would explain it to a five-year-old. Yeah, uh, it's definitely been a journey, and uh, and I will say that I wouldn't recommend that anybody do it exactly how we did it. Uh, we we launched it. Uh, initially after doing this research where we saw that climate efficiency leaders in pretty much every aspect of the economy were outperforming their peers. And actually, if you go to the Go In Depth section of our Etho Capital website, if any of your listeners are interested, you can play with the data and see how different industries and sectors and geographies respond to different climate efficiency criteria. And so we got as you would expect, really excited by these results. It was the aha, we should actually form a company and allow people to invest this way, not just use it to kind of footprint and be descriptive about what people were already doing. So we thought about different ways to do it. It seemed like more and more investors were shifting towards ETFs, and so we decided to go the index route. We didn't want to go through all the different regulatory hur hurdles of doing every piece of the ETF ourselves. So we decided to effectively, like, I said earlier, be the recipe creator that creates the index, and then we'd find a partner that would be the white label partner that would do all the, the regulatory compliance and the trading and custody of assets. 
and so that's with Etho. Uh, we're we're never actually taking investor assets directly. They ultimately go through U.S. Bank, and that's how the creation and redemption for the actual underlying equity holdings works. And so I won't get into the geeky details of how ETFs work. That's something any of your listeners can figure out online. Uh, but ultimately, it was about first creating a prototype index. Pretty quickly, we decided, hey, we don't want to just have this be climate, but we need to make sure that companies aren't bad actors in the other areas. So we started sending that prototype index around to primarily friends of mine that worked in environmental NGOs, social justice NGOs, got their feedback on, hey, does this list of companies look okay to you? Are there any companies that you wouldn't personally want to be invested in because of the work that you're doing specifically? And so we got some feedback in the first round of creating the index um, that helped us make it, again, not just investing in the most climate efficient companies, but those that also uh, fulfill kind of the wide range of ESG criteria that certainly I care about and the rest of our team as well. And then it was about finding a partner to actually launch the fund. So we looked around. At th that point, there were only a couple options. There are a lot more options now at this point because ETFs have become so popular. And so ultimately, we have a relationship with a partner that works with US Bank and other partners, deals with all the, the custody, regulatory compliance, reporting, et cetera. Um, and so we you know, effectively share in the economics of how the fund operates. And that's uh, in some ways similar to what we're doing now with New Day and these separately managed accounts and other potential partners we're speaking with as well. Um, so we went through all that process. It took, I'd say, about six months to sort out what direction we wanted to go. And then the other thing that we did, probably the craziest thing that we did, is mostly when a new ETF is launched, you have a, a large investor or a group of investors that commit to invest enough money into the, the new ETF to make it profitable effectively mm -hmm. from the get-go, enough money that the management fees from operating the fund pay for all the expenses. Um, we didn't have that. We effectively borrowed two and a half million <laughs> to get the fund off the ground. And so it, for the first few years of the fund, we had to really work our butts off to just get, get it out there that this fund existed and that it was performing extremely well, fulfilled all the climate and ESG criteria that investors said they were looking for. We were the only broadly diversified, fully fossil-free fund on the market when we first launched. Um, other much, much larger investment product creators <laughs> started launching things. So we, you know, a lot of what we do is still about kind of education about how what we're doing we think is different and better and more authentic in terms of climate and ESG relative to some of the other things in the space. Um, so it's it's been a journey, and thankfully, it's it's worked out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it certainly has taken a while to to get to the scale where we're able to you know, cover the costs and then be able to have more revenue to help grow all these other exciting things that we're working on now. Um, the more conventional path to launch a fund like this would be you have 
an institution or a wealthy individual that puts at least 50 or 100 million into the fund from the get-go and that from day one the fund is at least covering ex expenses and then it's able to have net revenue generation beyond that. But we were crazy in that we believed in this enough that we just said, hey, we think its performance and its sustainability characteristics were, will speak for themselves. We were partially right about that, but we certainly have had to go around a whole lot and just share what we're doing to raise awareness that we exist. And that's certainly our biggest challenge as uh, effectively a startup in this space is just having people know that we exist. We don't have you know, a multi-billion or trillion dollar asset manager group behind us to already have all these marketing channels. We've had to hack it and <laughs> figure out basically how to get out there. Um, we've been lucky that some particularly extremely wealthy family offices that are really concerned about climate in particular and ESG sustainability more broadly have found us and then they've shared mm -hmm. us around with their friends. Um, so we have that sort of backing that's helped us scale now that we didn't have it from the get-go. And then uh, we've been lucky also in that the media, um, in many cases, has found us without us having a media and marketing budget because what we've been doing has been unique enough, both in terms of its process and its performance. So that's helped us get the word out to all sorts of investors. And that's personally what I'm the most excited about <laughs> in terms of what we're doing is it's not just making wealthier, wealthy people wealthier, uh, <laughs> which historically has been a lot of what ESG investing has been doing, but actually making it accessible to all types of investors. Mm. And with an ETF that just trades with a ticker every day, it's it's easy to do that. They just need to know that we exist. And so that's that's one of our biggest challenges is just getting the word out. So if you had to do it again, you would um, start looking for a big investor first? Yeah, certainly with uh, the climate positive strategies that we're launching now. We're starting initially with indexes and separately managed accounts because we can do that through partnerships um, in ways that it's, it's much cheaper to start small and then grow. And then at this point, I don't think we would launch a new ETF until we had an investor, a group of investors that was ready to commit at least 50, ideally more like 100 million to it just from the start. Uh, and fortunately, we are in networks now that can help us do that, and we do have potential seeders for the strategies that we're starting as separately managed accounts. But yeah, I think it's interesting. In hindsight, I don't think I necessarily would say we should have done ETHO differently because you know, we there's the small startup that nobody had heard of, and we didn't have any track record to point to. Um, we could have just launched the index, but we actually saw others in the space try just launching indexes and startups and not getting any traction. So I think it actually was really important that we launched the fund when we did, how we did it, because that was basically the only way we could do it. Um, but a smarter way, if you can do it, is to is to have an anchor seed funder that that helps get it off the ground in terms of assets under management that are high enough from the get-go. Are there other things that you would do differently? Um, th those are really the biggest things. I think we've learned we've learned a fair amount in the process, um, and we certainly we certainly think of our 
company selection process to be continuously evolving and ideally continuously improving. And so, you know, there are companies that we've had in the fund that we've seen issues with that then we've taken out of the fund. Um, one like that uh, that was in the fund initially at launch that we took out pretty quickly is actually very personal. It was uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the local utility here in Northern California. And if you've been following the news at all, you probably also know that PG&E is been responsible for starting many of the wildfires in California, which certainly are made worse by climate change. But PG&E has had this long history of not maintaining its infrastructure and instead mm -hmm. taking money that should have put into improving its infrastructure and giving it out as corporate bonuses and shareholder dividends. And so back in 2015, um, and early, I think it was probably actually early 2016, I have to go back to the timing, but we saw the, the news coming out about this natural gas leak and explosion that PG&E infrastructure was connected to in San Bruno here in the Bay Area. And with that, there came out a lot of this news about them really not being responsible about their infrastructure, and they're actually a convicted corporate felon because of that. And so that was enough for us to just say, okay, this PG&E is a utility. They are doing some things that are better than utilities with a lot of renewable energy, and a lot of that's just because they're forced to because of California law. But clearly, there's a lot that's not right on the corporate governance side, and we should take them out of the fund. So we made that call. Um, that was ahead of any of the big wildfires. Unfortunately, we proved to be right with PG&E's equipment, you know, ca causing tens of thousands of acres to burn and thousands of homes to be lost. And that includes the fire that destroyed my family's farm, where we're still rebuilding several years later. It was started by PG&E infrastructure and a power line that should have had trees cleared around it, and they didn't do that, probably because it saved them money. Mm -hmm. Side question, but related to that. Um, so you have the strategies of divesting companies that you think are harmful. Um, other firms, for instance, uh, Engine Number One, are adopting different strategies. Could you please just give us uh, some thoughts about the d different strategies you can adopt and also how it does that translate to uh, for investors and including individuals who want to invest in the stock market, in the stock markets for the branches, for instance, and how they can navigate the space uh, to have a positive impact in the end? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that in the climate investing community, um, one of the biggest debates you've effectively touched on, which is investment and engagement versus divestment, and specifically for fossil fuel companies, what makes the most sense to do. And so engine number one has this approach where they are deliberately investing in companies like Exxon, bringing forth shareholder resolutions to try to push their leadership to change and actually vote in more climate-friendly board members. Um, I am glad they're doing that. I'm glad that some of the, the biggest investors now are actually voting with them and doing that. So it doesn't really matter if just engine number one does that. You need to get BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street to all vote for resolutions and actually push for a change in the board. With all that said, I still have 
zero faith that the fossil fuel industry, any individual company, is actually moving in a meaningful way to solve climate change. Uh, I think they, at this point, everything I've seen shows that even the, the more leading edge fossil fuel companies, particularly oil majors out of Europe, for example, um, not to name names, but one <laughs> in France in particular, have said a lot about this transition to zero carbon economy, but if you look at their projections, they still are projecting to be selling a lot of oil and gas by 2050. And the only way the climate math works out is if they have a business model that gets them to stop selling oil and gas as quickly as possible, ideally at the end of this decade, not several decades out. And at this point, none of them were anywhere close to doing that. And the projections they put out for net zero don't really align with where they're projecting their company growth to be. And so when even the most supposedly progressive-minded fossil fuel companies still have projections that have targets that are widely off what the established science says we have to do in terms of limiting warming to one and a half degrees and then actually going to net carbon removals. Um, I think it makes, it's pretty hard to actually say that engagement at this point can really drive any substantial change. My, my frank assessment is just, we need to see the fossil in fuel industry mostly go bankrupt. There's probably gonna be some room for plastics and other uses of petroleums well into the future. Um, but, you know, fossil fuels replaced the whale oil industry. You didn't see any whale oil companies turn into fossil fuel companies. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see fossil fuel companies turn into diversified renewable energy companies, like you might believe by their marketing materials. Um, we've seen this story before. Right? BP, at one point, rebranded themselves as Beyond Petroleum almost two decades ago, saying that they were going in this direction. That was two decades ago. They're still really nowhere near closer to moving in this direction. I've had a lot of friends uh, coming out of places like Berkeley and Stanford actually go into working with oil companies and their renewable energy, biofuels, solar, etc. divisions. Without exception, they've come out of that experience saying it's all marketing BS. The company doesn't actually believe in this stuff. They're just doing it for public perception and investor perception to give investors an excuse to stay invested. And in my mind, that's why the divestment versus engagement argument really strongly pushes towards divestment is where we have to go. Because it's, it's ultimately about just incentives in the core business model. When your core business model is you make money by selling oil and gas, you want to sell as much oil and gas as possible for as long as you possibly can. Much like if you're a tobacco company, your core <laughs> product is selling tobacco, you want to sell as much tobacco as possible for as long as you can. And that for as long as you can part means you, you pu publicly say nice things about climate now because you basically have to, but behind the scenes, you still are giving money to politicians and different groups that are putting out climate denier information, that are trying to delay policies and make policies less meaningful. And as far as we've seen, that is still going on. And that actually includes funneling money now into campaigns that are specifically putting out misinformation about divestment and trying to scare investors into thinking that they're gonna lose money that way. 
Um, but the reality is, you know, almost every major automaker now says they're going fully electric. Almost every major company now and every country is shifting to renewable energy. Um, so the writing is really on the wall just because of the technology change that the fossil fuel industry is dying. If you have money in a dying industry, it should just make sense to divest even if you don't care about the climate consequences. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't think there's actually any conflict between just better investor profitability and climate solutions. I think all signs point to divestment at this point. Um, and I had a really interesting personal experience that just, I think, gave me some unexpected insight into the, the mindset that ultimately is behind the people that are making de decisions at these fossil fuel companies. And I happened to be at an event and started talking to the guy next to me, or I think he actually stri struck up a conversation with me. And he asked me what I did. At that point, I was exclusively teaching courses on climate solutions at Stanford. And he said, oh, good for you, kind of laughed. He said, you probably won't like me. Turned out he was the CEO of one of the largest coal companies in the US and the world. And he continued to have a very congenial conversation with me that ultimately, ultimately ended in him saying, look, I believe there's something behind this climate change stuff. Uh, my son's investing in renewable energy. I'm doing some of that myself. But I'm here. I flew here on my corporate jet. That guy next to me, he's my doctor. He flies with me everywhere. I'm worth over $100 million. I like this lifestyle. I'm going to keep it up as long as I can. Um, so just, you know, nice for you, kid, that you care mm -hmm. about this stuff. But mm -hmm. my life's pretty good. It's better than yours, and I'm going to keep it up as long as I can. And it's basically that naked just greed, Robert Barry mentality, ultimately, I think is what's behind most of the executives that are running these companies. He's somebody that would go out and, you know, say sort of the right things about climate change, even though he was running a, a coal company. Um, since then, his coal company has gone bankrupt. He's out of a job. Doesn't matter to him. His hundred million plus is in the bank. And I think that's the mentality of most of the executive leadership behind these fossil fuel companies is basically get as much as I can for as long as I can. And if the company goes bankrupt because we're in a dying industry, uh, it doesn't matter to me because I'm gonna be out of here you know, a decade from now. So it's really about this basically just Robert Barron, short-term greed thinking. So that, that understandably has me pretty cynical that anything that fossil fuel companies say about shifting to be diversified renewable energy companies is at all meaningful. Again, because I've just had these personal experiences, have friends had similar experiences, and a lot of them are saying the right thing now, but there's a huge gap between what they're saying and what they need to do, because what they need to do is stop selling oil and gas, and that's their core business model. And there's really no bridge in between that core business model and the future that we need right now. And they realize that too. It's not. Exxon can't turn into a renewable energy company any easier than a tech company, <laughs> um, you know, which actually has uh, experience in silicon and energy transmission and stuff. There are some things that oil and gas has experience in that could transfer over to carbon storage and sequestration, and that's part of the reason that you see them investing heavily there. But I'm worried now that there's this shift in just trying to promote a hydrogen economy that ultimately is stripping hydrogen off natural gas and even coal 
Um, and that's how they're trying to perpetuate themselves right now, where you still have a lot of climate pollution that would be connected to that type of scenario. Mm -hmm. Related to that, and I will play the lawyer of the devil. Uh, so if tomorrow the fossil fuels companies go bankrupt and they stop providing oil, coal, and gas, and natural gas to people, uh, do you think the renewable energies and maybe if you believe in nuclear energy as well will be enough to supply homes uh, because in the end it's households warming during winter and very very impactful uh, things of uh, people's everyday life and Ener like energy and also affordable energy so what do you do when this company go bankrupt to make sure that people are not affect, like harmed in a, in a very, very harsh way. And usually it's uh, the more poorer households uh, right. that, are, that are affected. Yeah, and they've certainly put out a lot of propaganda funded by the various think tanks they give money to, to try to scare us all into thinking that we can't live without them effectively. The reality is, and this is something that makes me really optimistic that I talk about, with my students at Stanford is just renewable energy is the cheapest source of energy almost everywhere in the world now, particularly solar, but also wind. They're already cheaper, far cheaper than coal, not even counting in the environmental externality costs uh, in most places. And the main challenge is how do you mitigate the fact that they are intermittent, that the wind energy obviously works when the wind's blowing, solar works when the sun's shining. And increasingly, energy storage is also getting super cheap. And that's the other real good news that is both really good news in terms of renewable energy penetration, um, but also good news in terms of electric vehicles is just battery storage in particular. It's seen the same sort of exponential price declines that we saw with solar and wind. Lithium ion batteries are just getting cheaper and cheaper every year, and processes are continuing to improve. Whereas most cases, fossil energy is getting more expensive every year because you have to go to farther away, harder to extract places to get it. And so that discrepancy between fossil energy and renewable energy is only continuing to change, to, to grow. And in many places, fossil energy is actually getting subsidized by our tax dollars, either directly or indirectly. And so I would posit the argument that not only can we afford this renewable transition, we actually can't afford not to. It's hurting particularly those that are poorer the most, not just because of climate impacts, but because of economic impacts that we aren't shifting as quickly as we can to cheaper renewables. And there's a lot that we can do to accelerate that transition, but it's, it's really not an either or in terms of economics and climate benefits with this transition to renewable energy and electrified tra transportation as part of that. There certainly are pieces of the climate puzzle that are harder to solve, like air transportation, for example. For that, probably hydrogen makes sense or some sort of other renewable jet fuel replacements. There's a lot that's been done with developing those kind of technologies already. Even for short haul flights, energy densities for batteries are getting high enough that it may make sense to have electrified aviation for shorter flights and at some point as battery technology continues to improve longer flights. But 
we basically already have all the technologies we need to have a pretty close to zero carbon transportation and other energy system um, related to electricity, home heating, et cetera. So it's, it's really more about just making that shift happen mm -hmm. and having the political backbone to make that happen because that's a huge piece of the problem is these fossil fuel companies still do have deep pockets uh, and they are still putting a lot of money into the political systems around the world to keep the status quo going. I or other uh, recently graduate students were to launch an impact uh, fund, what would be your advice? What steps uh, should be followed? Yeah, well, gosh, I, I hesitate to give any, any strong advice other than, um, you know, unless you happen to already be very wealthy yourself, then you can sort out a lot of things on your own find a, a good partner to work with um, and ideally that partner can kind of take all the regulatory lift off you so you can focus on probably what you're most interested in which is actually selecting the companies that go into the fund and uh, I think my advice would be with that said if you can find the right partner um, go for it and I think we constantly we need more strategies out here. I think a lot of things is it also about um, being sure to have the legitimacy to go and it's most of the time is self self constraining but what do you think a partner or a corporate will expect in terms of legitimacy from a young person to prove so that they can give them money? Um. Yeah, it definitely is a bit of a chicken or an egg thing <laughs> where uh, often investors that start their own funds have come out of some big established entity, right? And so they can always already say, hey, I've helped manage X number of billions of dollars in the space and, and reach out to their network that they already have to get seed funding into it. So I think if you don't have that as a student, it certainly is very difficult, unless you happen to be a student who's also like founded a tech startup or comes from a trust fund or something and has a network you can tap into to do that. Um, so I think doing a fund right out of school without that sort of, those sort of resources probably would be very difficult. I think you'd be best served either working with a big established player that's doing more conventional ESG or a startup like Etho that is open to empowering students and recent grads to actually be a, a core part of the process. So it's a lot about collaboration and finding good, the good partners, right? Yeah, and just in terms of that legitimacy uh, for the financial industry, it's so much of it is just about relationships like a lot of other industries, but <laughs> I think finance in particular, because you're getting people to trust you with their money. And so the more you can point to a track record and have a network of people recommend you, uh, the easier it is to, to grow. And for Etho, it you know, effectively took us years to get there. And we're still way, way smaller than the biggest players that are managing you know, in the trillions. Um, but we do, I'd say we were a little bit naive when we first launched Etho, thinking, hey, if we can just show that this makes more money and it 
is substantially more sustainable in terms of climate than ESG should just speak for itself. We then realize that that's sort of true, but a whole lot of it is making sure that that message gets out there and navigating all these different channels. And with financial products, there is a fair amount of relationships that are pay to play in terms of where funds get placed. And frankly, there's a lot about the industry that I wish was more egalitarian and you know centered around performance characteristics rather than relationships and in some cases kind of what seems like should be illegal shady pay-for-play type situations we don't do that stuff at Etho, but a whole lot of the established financial uh, investing system that you see does have these kind of relationships in play where the menu of funds that you are offered for your retirement plan like a 401k has been highly curated and has a lot of a lot of relationships that have gone into that that it's difficult for anybody with a, a startup fund to break into. So if you had a magic wand to change the ESG industry, would it be about that moving from relationships to more um, objective data? I think that would be one piece of it. Um, I think I think it's about ultimately accessibility and then incentives. I think for all of us as individual investors, uh, we should have a much wider range of options that we can invest in for our, our retirement plans that are sponsored by companies or, or organizations like a 401k plan. Um, so for Etho, we're easy for people to invest if they are doing it with their own fully self-directed account, like a, an IRA, um, an individual retirement account. But for 401ks, it's much more difficult for our, us to get our funds in there. So that's something that I think really would help revolutionize the industry is democratizing access to platforms and basically making it a lot easier for folks with startup funds with really innovative strategies to get out there to all sorts of investors. Another piece, I think, is is just the top-down incentives about how money gets managed, and particularly the incentives as they relate to how big institutional investors manage their money. There has been, as we mentioned, the shift towards index investing, so big pensions like CalPERS and CalSTRS here in California and sovereign wealth funds. They're increasingly m investing most of their assets in a broadly diversified index, usually some version of the MSCI, ACWI, All Country, All World Index. Um, but they actually have, in some ways, constrained what they can do because their portfolio managers who are actually making the allocation decisions are ultimately getting their own job performance assessed on how they're doing relative to what's called tracking error to their conventional index benchmark, where tracking error is basically just how much above or below that index uh, are you. And that's as long as you're following more or less what the index is doing, then it's considered that you're doing a good job, mm -hmm. um, which sort of makes sense, but it also makes it so there's really no incentive for innovation around either financial performance or climate and other ESG issues. And kind of weirdly for Etho, we've had a big challenge breaking into this market because we've created strategies that are performing too much better than the conventional benchmarks. And so when a portfolio manager is looking at it, there's too much tracking error. 
That tracking error we would say is all in the right direction, or it's mostly in the right direction. It's mostly meaning that the, the strategy is actually performing better than the conventional benchmark it. But because of these tracking error requirements that are placed on portfolio managers, it ultimately makes it so they don't have the incentive to really shift assets in a meaningful way. So increasingly, as UNPRI and these other big pledges related to climate and ESG sustainable investing have scaled up, and you've had many of the big pensions and other big asset owners sign on to them, you have lots of nice rhetoric at the top about how ESG makes a difference and we really need to be thinking about climate impact, et cetera. But then ultimately, the portfolio managers making decisions about where money goes mm -hmm. still are incentivized in the same old-fashioned tracking error thinking ways. And so you have leadership saying one thing, but those that are actually moving the money still basically doing what they've always been doing. And kind of cynically, you see a lot of strategies from the larger uh, ETF providers and other fund providers that, that take that into account and they construct strategies that they call ESG or climate or low carbon but they construct them with really minimal tracking error requirements. And so if you look at the actual holdings, it's very close to identical what you would actually have just in the broad-based benchmark with some different weightings and maybe some exclusions. Um, but in many cases, they're not even divesting from fossil fuel companies, for example. They're just investing less in those companies and shifting some more. They're investing in the ones that are supposedly doing better in terms of climate. Uh, so that's another big kind of finance geeky thing that I think really needs to change is just the overall incentivization around where money goes and ultimately basically how portfolio manager job performance is assessed because until we shift the dynamic from, you know, you should do something about ESG, but it's all about basically doing what you've always done with tracking error targets to your job depends on you doing better in terms of climate and other ESG. And you shouldn't perform worse than your benchmark, but you are welcome and encouraged to perform better. I think until we have that shift, we're not gonna see the real scale up and meaningful ESG and climate solution investing that we need to see, because it's those large asset owners that are you know, tens of trillions of the money that's in the public equity space and that ultimately is kind of where the flow of capital pushes everything else is coming from those big investors and so all of us as individual investors and in our retirement funds etc can certainly do better as well um, but we need to get those institutionals to have much better incentives and the thing with that too is ultimately it's public money that they're investing um, you know if you're a public pension that's effectively taxpayer dollars and your public employees' money that then is getting invested for uh, retirement benefits. And so we really should demand, just as voters, that our, our politicians put in rules that make it so that public money is invested in a much more sustainable way. And we still we still haven't really done that even here in California that claims to be really progressive about implementing climate solutions, but still has a whole lot of public money invested in fossil fuel companies. There has been a push to divest it from coal at least, but that's also been just because the industry's been dying. And even there, you've seen pushback from some of the institutional investors not wanting to comply with that. So 
ultimately, I think a lot of it is about we need to do much better about aligning what we say our values are, our rhetoric around sustainability, climate ESG, with what we're actually doing and aligning incentives to make sure that that continuously is pushing in the right direction. Could you explain a bit further who should initiate, initiate this uh, shift in incentives? So I think ideally we would see uh, the large uh, institutional investors do it themselves. Like here in California, CalPERS and CalSTRS are the biggest ones, so you'd actually see their senior leadership, their chief investment officers uh, initiate this change around how their portfolio managers are assessed. In absence of them doing that, which they haven't been doing, um, and I think there is, and this isn't just a, a problem for big institutional investors, it's also a problem for even, even environmental foundations often are investing their endowments in ways that totally conflict with their mission. So you, you can have a big environmental foundation that is focused on scaling up climate solutions. They have this big endowment, 5% of that each year is going towards climate solutions and then 95% of it is invested in very conventional ways, including in fossil fuel companies. And you can make some pretty compelling arguments that that 95% is actually out, you know, the bad from that is outdoing all the good they're doing elsewhere. Um, so for big institutional investors that are public pensions and sovereign funds though, they're actually regulators, politicians effectively, can drive change. And so in California, we actually had legislation that mandated uh, CalPERS and CalSTRS divest from coal. They pushed back on that, um, but that is being implemented. We could have legislation either coming from our state legislature or actually coming from the voters in a ballot initiative to basically require that all public pensions fully divest from fossil fuels um, and ideally go well beyond that to invest in you know, climate th solutions throughout the rest of the e economy. Uh, so that's, that's probably the place that it makes the most sense to drive this kind of change. Um, is either at the ballot box or through legislative action. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have fossil fuel companies aggressively lobbying behind the scenes to undercut any of this. So it's, it's about you know, which politicians actually have the backbone to, to push back against that money. So to summarize, it's about excluding some sectors and also uh, changing the way fund managers are incentivized so that, for instance, they're not only uh, incentivized on their financial performance, but also on the positive ESG impact that they're having through the investments. Exactly. And I think with climate change in particular, we really should think about portfolios going not just to net zero, but actually to net positive. And perhaps even having mandates around that. And the kind of analysis that we're doing at Etho generates the data that shows it's, it's very possible to do it and actually do it in a way that's just as financially profitable, if not more so, than what we're currently doing. And so having those kind of what now are voluntary goals around portfolio decarbonization and net zero and Ideally, even pushing to net positive, we're 
as far as we, we've seen really kind of the first in the industry to be talking about going beyond next, net zero to net positive. But it's something that we hope and think all investors and portfolio managers should be doing. And ideally, it becomes a core element, like you said, of a portfolio manager's job performance, where basically, I think it's not really going to change until the people managing the money are afraid that they'll lose their job if they don't make the change happen. Mm -hmm. um, because they're, you know, right now we're still in a system where most folks that are portfolio managers or being institutional investors, maybe they care about sustainability, but that wasn't kind of the primary reason they took their job, right? It's relatively recent development. Just <laughs> a lot of it's been even within the, the half decade plus that ETHO has been around the ESG and sustainability and climate investing have become so mainstream, at least in the rhetoric. But to bridge that gap between rhetoric and reality, we really need to shift incentives. And ultimately, that probably comes down to incentives in terms of who's hired and uh, in these kind of roles. And, and certainly, we need to make sure that we're still investing responsibly for financial performance, because we're talking about people's pensions. We're talking about, ultimately, public employees' ability to survive in the future. My, much of my family are retired elementary and uh, other public school teachers, and so they depend on CalSTRS for their pension livelihood, essentially. So it, there still is a lot of misinformation and scare tactics around saying, you know, we can't, we can't integrate this stuff. This is just crazy hippie stuff that's going to lose money. A lot of the evidence shows exactly the opposite, that actually these pensions are underperforming and losing money by staying investing in particularly fossil fuels, a dying industry, but also more broadly not looking at climate risks and how they invest. I brought up the example of PG&E. Of course, PG&E has now gone bankrupt for the second time, primarily due to those wildfire li liabilities. And they've had to pay out billions of dollars, billions of dollars in settlements related to that. Which still, my family and I haven't seen a penny from because it's been—it's uh, a whole nother story, a very drawn-out process in terms of the liability and trying to actually compensate victims from all these fires. Um, but I think ultimately, until we align incentives with just the core desire <laughs> to keep your job, if you're a portfolio manager, then we're not going to see the kind of scale of change that we need to see. And, and thinking about portfolios in the sense of net climate positive, trying to get there, having, you can, you can think about climate efficiency targets portfolio-wide that a portfolio manager is assessed on every year. And like how, how is your portfolio improving? Think about the, that being in alignment with the decarbonization targets overall for the state, for the country. And that's something we have all the data to do now. And we have been showing for now over half a decade that you can do it and financially perform just as well, if not better. Um, we just need to do it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we're talking around, uh, about um, is around scale. Uh, so what are for you the biggest challenges in really scaling up uh, the positive impact from ESG and impact investing? I, th I think one of the biggest challenges is just getting the accounting right and making sure that we're authentic in accounting what, what companies are actually doing, not just what they say they're doing. Because, you know, companies are ultimately smart. <laughs> they, 
they know the more that investors and politicians and are paying attention to ESG, the more they're going to have to say nice things about themselves. Um, but our current ESG reporting system still really rewards bigger companies that have all the staff to put out the glossy CSR reports and check all the boxes that gives them a good ESG score. Whereas smaller and mid-sized companies that may be just or even more sustainable don't necessarily score as well. Um, so that's one of the challenges, I think, is just continuing to improve and get, you know, go beyond rhetoric to reality, make sure that we're looking at what companies are actually doing, and that's a big part of what we're doing with Etho. Um, another challenge is just getting this information out to everybody, ideally, um, not just within the impact investor community, but just broadly uh, to the companies themselves, to the general public as well. And so that's one of the other things we're working on with Etho uh, for a while. We've been starting to play with designs for a platform that would at least let us take a portion of our data and make it accessible to, to everybody um, to try to just improve decision making for all of us as investors and consumers and then ultimately try to give companies more honest feedback about what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, and hopefully that drives continuous improvement when they see that they're not able to just game the system by putting out more glossy CSR reports. Um, so ultimately, I th yeah, I think it's, it's about information and incentives and getting those out there in the right ways. And you know, for Etho, we would probably be having more impact if we had millions of dollars in marketing budget that we could toss <laughs> around to get out get out the word that we <laughs> exist, but I'm sure this podcast is going to, you know, do that too. If any of the listeners want to jump on that, feel free. <laughs> so thank you very much for sharing all of this. I think, so as a wrap-up, I usually like to ask very quick questions, require just a recording quick answers without uh, necessarily justification. I'll try. Okay. <laughs> So, if you had to choose, would it be ESG or impact? I think impact. Everybody answers that. Uh, teaching or investing? I love teaching, but I think investing generally has more impact, but I'd like to do both, so I'm going <laughs> to hedge on that. Go bears or fear the tree? <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of love in, in both directions. I mean, obviously, I, I am a tree over many decades, but uh, yeah, I, I, I love bears too. You are on the flag. <laughs> a final word, uh, what gives you hope? Gosh, uh, I think that, well, the fact we're having this conversation, it, it does mean that a lot has a lot has improved, I think, in the space over the last half decade plus that at least I've been in it. And when I was in school doing stuff with the Earth Systems program at Stanford, just felt like it was this little club of sustainability geeks and then the rest of the campus. Now when I come back to campus to teach, basically students from every major are coming in and taking my courses on climate solutions. and sustainability assessment techniques and so what gives me hope is is it's cliche to say but <laughs> the younger generations coming in where sustainability is just a given 
that it, uh, it's not something that you do. Um, it's either you do it as your primary converter path or you do everything else. It's regardless of what kind of job you're doing, sustainability can be an aspect of it. And so I think just that shift in thinking really has been pretty profound in the last uh, decade or two. And so that gives me hope that the mentality globally is moving in the right direction. And when you pair that up with the fact that the rhetoric is in the right direction now, pretty much every country in the world, you know, does change sometimes depending on who's elected. Um, pretty much every major company, pretty much every large investor now says climate change matters, ESG matters, we need to scale up solutions. Um, so it's really now about just making sure that that rhetoric matches reality. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to help with that as much as we can with Ethel. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. Thank you very much all for listening. This was the Golden Impact Podcast with me, Orient Tong, interviewing Yan Monroe. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and talk about it around you. And you can also contact me on LinkedIn if you have any questions. Thank you and speak to you soon.